This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hi, LSPod fans. It's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin? Sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com the talksport fan network is proudly teaming up with free for mental health awareness week this year we understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing but rest assured you're not alone there's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges honesty is key in any relationship if your friend asks you how you are feeling tell them honestly if you're going through a difficult time let them know Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome to The Lobe Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Love Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. My guest for this episode is Super Sammy Parkin. Sam is a fine example of one of those football signings when you should never trust what fans of his previous club says because when he arrived in Wiltshire in 2002, Northampton supporters warned us about how rubbish he would be. He's probably the best 50 grand that the club have ever spent. In all competitions, he is Swindon Town's 16th highest goalscorer. In the league, he's Town's 8th top goalscorer. But in the 21st century, he sits comfortably at number one. He won the Player of the Season award two out of three times and was inducted into the Swindon Town Hall of Fame. What I hope you get out of this conversation is just how much Sam loved his three years at the club and how much he still loves Swindon today. Like all of my guests, Sam was very generous with his time and was in great form throughout and I thank him for it. So here we go then. It's time to sound the hooter for episode 14 of The Love Strangers. Enjoy. Sam Parkin, welcome. 
How you doing, Rich? Good to good to speak to you. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, if I call you Sammy or Super Sammy or Super Sammy Parkin or SSP during this, forgive me. <laughs> it's how I've been addressing you for over a decade. So um, when talking about you, so I'll, I'll try and keep it to Sam. But forgive me if I do move astray. Now, who did you support as a child? Oh, uh, QPR. Yeah, I made that. I made that uh, quite well known. I think during my my career. Yeah, QPR were completely inoffensive to me growing up in West Wiltshire. Um, nobody hated QPR. In fact, Westbury, where I'm from, the, the Sunday League team, the main Sunday League team, was actually named Westbury Rangers after QPR. Trevor Sinclair's overhead kick made them quite a popular team, I would say, growing up. What are your memories of QPR and who were your footballing heroes, QPR and beyond? Oh, I mean, so many. I mean, I was a QPR nut to be honest, from a very early age, uh, probably from the age of seven or eight, I would say, I started going. So I had some, you know, some great eras at, at QPR, really. The first kind of players were Terry Fennick, mm. Gary Bannister. This is when I'm really young, so I don't really recall being at the matches, etc. And then, obviously, you had a golden period in the 90s with Trevor that you just mentioned there. I was actually at that game, oh. having played for... Chelsea's youth team in the morning that's what I used to do I used to play for Chelsea's youth team in the morning and the rest of the lads would obviously be off home or whatever for the weekend and I'd uh, get on the tube and on the bus and make sure I was at QPR for three o'clock so I actually made that after playing in the morning for QPR's probably biggest rivals at the time mm. so but yeah Trevor was a, a hero definitely my biggest one of course was uh, Les yeah, I mean, probably my biggest footballing hero of, of all time, Les. Um, a brilliant goal scorer. And um, that was probably the start of QPR's decline, unfortunately. When he got sold, it was never as good. So that glory year, I think it was 95, 96, where, yeah, I've probably been late on in secondary school by then. But, um, yeah, I used to go every home game, season ticket holder, and um, and we'd pick a few away ones as well to, to go to with my, my dad and uh, a few friends that were local and were, were QPR mad as well. I remember, obviously, we'll bring it, bring it on to Swindon shortly. But I remember the season, obviously, the Premier League season, mm. and um, I remember the Swindon Town fans vividly walking around Shepherd's Bush Green in fancy dress with the uh, carrying the coffin, which <laughs> I presume was the uh, the Premier League status that was uh, dying. And I remember it and as QPR always did and I think I'm allowed to say this as a QPR fan because there has been a lot of misery Swindon did the double over QPR that year just so typical and I remember that, remember it sat at the back of the stand I think John Monker got one but I remember it vividly and I remember all the, the fans in the away end the lower tier or the, the Swindon supporters um, you know enjoying that day even though it was the, the last day of the season after what had been a pretty testing campaign When you were a professional footballer and you play against your boyhood team, as you did several times, and in your case, scored in a victory over them. How easy is it to separate the occupation from the passion? Uh, I think very easy. I think I found it, yeah, pretty pretty straightforward because I played against QPR regularly uh, for the youth team and the reserves, as you could imagine, mm. you know, being at Chelsea, I played against them all the time and QPR didn't want me. You know, when I was a kid, I was on their doorstep um, most London clubs I spoke to I can't remember having any affiliation with Arsenal at any stage or, or QPR they, they were the two really so um, it wasn't a case of I felt ignored but it hadn't happened and I'd ended up at Chelsea and by then I had an affiliation for them and even talking to you today I'm quite muddled obviously QPR is in my heart but you know I've got an affiliation with Chelsea I know the people there I spent 
10 years of my life there. So um, when I started playing first team football against QPI, it was it was fine. Although there was there was the second year when we were going for the playoffs and Kingy made me captain at Loftus Road. Mm. And that was because Kingy knew that I had an encyclopedic memory about QPR players. You know, it was my passion. He made me captain, and and to be honest, it, the day just passed me by. And I think it probably was a bit a bit too much for me. You know, the emotion of being a professional footballer, being on the pitch where I stood behind the goal for years and and sat in the Ellerslie Road stand, being on there as a captain playing league football, it it was just a ball all a bit too much. And I remember being poor. I remember really regretting it after the 90 minutes, and um, I remember having a row with my then girlfriend at the time that night as well so it was it was a weird emotion it was weird emotions that evening so maybe playing at Loftus Road sometimes was difficult to handle but no I mean I never felt you know different when I went through on goal or you know the effort I put into games and and stuff like that and I think my record showed that because I got quite a few goals against Rangers and crucially when you did score I think that's certainly one that you scored at the county ground you celebrated which is lovely not none of this sort of downplaying it's all right. I support QPR. Yeah. You were like, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was. I think that was my 20th goal of the season, wasn't it? And a crucial part of the game, I think it was 2-1 at the, at the time. It might have been one all, but mm. it was the goal as well, wasn't it? It's probably my favourite goal of all time. It's right up there. Um, I, I was capable of that, but, I mean, producing it on a, a match day is completely different. It's, you know, it's easier for a centre-forward to just pop it off, you know, mm. or and get in the box, which I did, you know, the majority of my time. But I had that ability. I mean, I'm sure the lads would tell you. Um, maybe it was that belief uh, to do it on the big stage, which was lacking a little bit for me, uh, that real confidence. But, yeah, it was a lovely goal. And I remember I had a mate and his girlfriend there that day. And, and of course, my mum my who come to the majority of the games. And um, they certainly enjoyed it because I've never taken my shirt off um, <laughs> since. And I've never taken it off before. So it was a, it was a funny one why I did that. <laughs> your uh, football education um, goes to Chelsea I'm always since I read Mike Calvin's book The Nowhere Men which is about scouting um, mm. I enjoy reading about how footballers end up at their at their clubs were you the sort of kid footballer that scored 50 goals in like 10 games how did it how did you make it to Chelsea yeah I mean I played a variety of positions early on and then it was a Sunday league manager put me as a centre forward and yeah it was 50 60 70 goals obviously I was big and I was strong and I was quick at that age played with some really good players who would just find me you know just slide me through or stick me over the top and I found you know finishing easy really at that age and um, I was at Wimbledon initially um, they spotted me just playing in the six-a-side tournament for my Sunday league team. And I probably had, you know, a, a really productive Saturday or Sunday morning or whatever it was, scored 10 goals or whatever in the tournament. So I was at Wimbledon and, and they trained um, just up the road from me at the Bank of England, which is Roehampton, which is right by, uh, right by where the LTA is now. And um, it was it's probably a five-minute walk from the house I grew up in. So it, it was it was easy, but I never really felt comfortable there I didn't really fit in a lot of the lads were from the same area they were all kind of like Surrey boys and played for the same teams and I never really felt I showed my best there so I kind of left there naturally they didn't want to keep me on I wasn't happy 
And then there was a bit of a scramble um, to try and get me to go. And Bob Osborne is the, the scout who was the kit man for a long time at Chelsea. Um, obviously, after he was a initially he was a school teacher and he was a scout. And um, Bob, you know, really made it known that they wanted me. You know, he used to give me all the kit and he used to give me the first team players' boots and stuff. And you know, he was, you know, I used to do a bit of training in the off season with some other young promising players in the in the area. And at the time, Chelsea, you know, I could roll off 20 players, young lads who were in their first team setup at the time. Michael Dubry, uh, Neil Shipley, uh, Jody Morris, Mark Nichols, Paul Hughes, Eddie Newton, Andy Myers. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a club that really put their faith in youth. And uh, there was a, an obvious progression from the youth team into the first team at Chelsea. So it was a no-brainer for me, really. And that's how I ended up there. It was... Um, I wouldn't say it was persuasion. I think, uh, you know, it was a big club in London, close to where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a better feel than I did at, at Wimbledon. I felt that I, I belonged quite early on there. Do you look back and acknowledge your education at Chelsea uh, with positivity? Yeah, of course I do. Um, it's, there's two sides to every story and two sides to the coin. And of course, I mean, the other club I, I could have gone to was Millwall. They, they were, again, they trained at my school. But it almost felt too easy at that age because Chelsea was a Premier League club and Mill would have probably been Championship League One at the time uh, you know Division One it was almost as if you didn't have to be the cream of the crop to go to Millwall that was my kind of outlook on it you know to Chelsea they had the best players in the in the area they had the best players in the South East you know you're John Terry the best player in East London and John Harley the best player in Kent and that was kind of my outlook I suppose with going there so yeah in terms of the education it was brilliant. We played, you know, three five two. It was Glenn Hoddle, then Rude Hullett. So I was playing, you know, up in a num- in a two, but we played with a little pivot midfield player and wing backs, and it was really continental style of play. And and of course, when the, in- the introduction of all the foreign players happened as well, that just took my my education, my learning to a, to a different level. Learning from the likes of Zola and Viali and people like that. But you know, of course, I at times in years gone by when I got to. 2021 and just making my way in the game I thought if I'd have gone to Millwall I'd have probably played 200 games by now and you know there was a there was a part of me that regretted it I'm quite matey with Stephen Reid was then and and quite matey with him now and you look what Stephen had achieved by the age of 21 22 um it was very different to to me you know I'd, I'd played games but but obviously he had the continuity of being at the club that he grew up at getting in the first team with all his peers that he'd been in the youth team it's it's very different for players that are at big clubs. You've only got probably one in John Terry who's who's made that transition and, and stayed there. And was he was he a future England captain at that stage? Was he was he that good or was he still very raw at that stage? No, he was exceptional, John. He was a central midfield player when I first met him, about 14, little chubby thing. And he used to get loads of goals from midfield. So that's obviously where his, his knack of scoring headers from crosses remain throughout his career but now John was John didn't care about what people thought about him he had one goal and one goal only and that was to be a professional footballer at Chelsea you know and and captain the club and he had such drive that maybe the rest of us lacked he didn't care what the rest of us thought about him and it's quite an unforgiving place a football dressing room Mm. especially when you're, you're young lads in that era and um John just didn't care you know he He'd do extra training. He'd, he'd clean extra pairs of boots if it was going to get him, you know, um, ahead in life um, with the first team players or with the staff. 
and um, he, when he was given the opportunity to train with the first team, you could just see him develop so quickly. He grew and got strong, and uh, he was never quick, of course, but his ability and his men- mentality were so strong, both of them, that yeah, there was no doubt in my mind. And, and of course, I'm immensely proud of what he's achieved, if somewhat jealous, of course. When I was talking to Reese Evans, he he was telling me that he had full access to the senior goalkeepers. If we were to list the attackers that were at the club mm. when you were there, Zola, Cassiraghi, Flo, Viali, George frickin' Weir, um, Chris <laughs> Sutton, who people forget because he's a misery guts on the radio, people forget how much of a prolific goal scorer he was. Mm. Stanich, Gudjonsson, Hasselbank. Did you have the access to those forwards like Reese had for the goalkeepers? Mm, I wouldn't say so, no. Mm-hmm. It was very different to, to what Reese probably described, mm-hmm. considering there was one goalkeeping coach at that stage, as Reese uh, probably told you. So he was working with those guys every day. We, we were very much, I wouldn't say segregated, because we were in the same building and on the same training pitches. But there was a first team group, there was a reserve group, and there was a, a youth team group. So to be honest, the people that I learned the most from in the early years was the people that were probably cast aside from the first team. So Mark Steen and mm. Paul Furlong and and obviously David Rowcastle, who were all brilliant because they'd obviously have to play in the reserves and would train with us regularly. And, you know, it's just still David Rowcastle who won titles with Arsenal and um, Paul Furlong and Mark Steen who played at the top level for a number of years. So I more spoke to them in terms of my game and where I needed to improve and, and stuff like that, if truth be told. But, you know, I'm not denying that someone like Gianfranco Zola wasn't an amazing fella because he was so nice to everyone. But because I wasn't directly training with them, it was difficult. And you've you got to remember as well, I'm a 16-year-old kid, 17-year-old kid. These are world-famous stars. You didn't really talk to them unless you were spoken to. It's, you know, it's, um, it was still quite old school in those days. But yeah, I remember watching Zola and, and Viali, Viali especially, his movement. Um, I think that's something that he was very famous for and caught the eye of a lot of people when he came to England. We always used to say as a striker, you make two runs. So one for the defender, one for yourself, go short and then spin behind. Viali used to do about six. So he used to go <laughs> towards the ball, away from the ball, etc. It was incredible. And that's something I definitely learned from him, not the six, but I always used to make a little dummy run to take the defender towards the ball before moving behind or vice versa so you pick I picked up things from them but yeah those kind of older experienced guys who've been cast aside they were people that probably more made an impact on me at that age hmm. uh, the 15 year old Rich Pullen uh, needs to ask about Sam Dalla and Luca Picassi uh, because <laughs> I used to sign them on Championship Manager all the time back in the day overseas players within the academy sets, setups were still quite a novelty back then talked about Fiali and his experience and Zola as well but did the younger players bring stuff into the tables well that was at a time I think Ranieri had maybe taken over by then or certainly Viali. they were very very professional the pair of them very professional I'm going to completely contradict myself here when I tell you that my lasting memory of those two is um, Luca I think it was we used to pull up at traffic lights they used to drop me home in Hammersmith quite a lot because they lived obviously as you can imagine somewhere swanky up the King's Road <laughs> or something and they used to drop me off and I remember Luca pulling up against girls in traffic and in the car and talking to them through the window and getting numbers and <laughs> getting girl, girls numbers and stuff and I've never seen anything like it he was charmed personified Luca and um, 
I think he's gone on to be a general manager or mm-hmm. something yeah. in a club in Serie A. So that just shows you. And he was um, away from the chatting up women. They were uber professional, you know, at that age, which we were probably anything but. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they probably had an impact on the dressing room in that regard. I remember Luca was just such a nice bloke. And Sam was very, very shy. Uh, Luca probably struggled I would say he, he, he didn't really stand out even in youth team reserve games but Sam had something about him he could finish he had a ridiculous strike from long range and obviously he got his chance under Ranieri I think yeah the first team and played for a season or two and um was really good Sam it was really good he wasn't I felt those two probably you know we were all a little bit jealous about the opportunities that were afforded to them not me because it wasn't my position but yeah I, I think they probably overtook a few of the guys who had good ability and maybe should have had an opportunity around the same time the 15 year old Rich Pullen thanks you it's 4-1 Matt Hewlett defending was awful absolutely awful Finally unleashed on to the Football League or into the Football League throughout the 2000 and 2001 season when you're sent out on loan to three different clubs all in the third tier. Millwall, so you finally made your way uh, to join Stephen Reid there, uh, Wickham and Oldham. Uh, your first is at Millwall and it's a fantastic start to the season or for you because you score on your debut in the second minute. It's a 5-0 win, you get the fourth as well. Who was that against? Written in the stars, wasn't it? Against, against Oxford, yeah. It was fantastic. What what a way to start your football career. Uh, that was amazing. That was a brilliant time. And probably because I've already touched on it, you know, I wasn't the most confident of lads, believe it or not. And I hadn't started well at Millwall at all. Um, you know, I've gone, again, I've gone from training, you know, with the youth team lads, really, playing the odd reserve game, scoring goals, but kind of plucked from nowhere, really. I trained really badly the first few weeks and the manager actually lost his job. It was McCleary and Stevens, Keith Stevens. Mm-hmm. And um, they got the sack without me kicking a ball. So it was actually um, Ray Harford, who um, obviously sadly passed away a, yeah. a few years later. Brilliant guy. Ray and um, Steve Grip, who gave me my debut. And again, I'd been struggling a little bit in training, but I think Ray had seen me and um, just called me into the office. I think he'd seen me in some reserve games probably and called me into the office. It was a porter cabin at, at Mill in Bromley, I think, and um, said, oh, you're playing Saturday, by the way, you and Neil Harris. So um, that was it. Went home a couple of days, got my, got my head on it, nervous as anything. And I scored within about 90 seconds. So <laughs> played a one-two with Chopper and um, smashed one into the roof of the net. And, and that was that, really. I thought, well, this is this is easy, isn't it? There's no different from playing in the youth team. And, and yeah, we won 5-0. I probably should have scored three or four that day. But no, that was a brilliant start. And yeah, such a, such fond memories. Because, again, like, I knew quite a few of the lads. And that was a really good dressing room at Millwall. What is the Millwall experience like? I know you were only there for a little bit, but... Ridiculously unique for it, honestly. Like, it wasn't... It, it turned out to a really successful season, mm. but it was obviously Division 1 at the time. They won the league that year. But I always say, obviously, it depended who the opposition were, if you were playing a Stoke or, you know, someone with big support and, and, and obviously some, some tasty <laughs> fans, if you know where I'm going. And um, But the Millwall fans would... Yeah, it, they create such an atmosphere for every game. And there'd be trouble most weeks at the games. I remember running up the, the touchline at Millwall and just seeing like the 
the two sets of supporters going at each other, you know, verbally. And I think this is every week. <laughs> and um, yeah, when they're for you, there's nothing better. And fortunately, when I was there, it went really well. So everyone was so nice and having that support from a real passionate fan base is amazing. But I wouldn't have wanted to be there if I was having a stinker and, mm. and going a few games without scoring because they certainly let you know. But now my experience was, was brilliant. And yeah, probably yeah, i got a number of regrets. I, I don't really buy into saying you shouldn't have any. I've got a number of regrets and I should have stayed there for the season because mm. I was a young kid. I was, well, I knew I was a good player, but... I don't know. I think I, I kind of found, found myself out of the team under Mark McGee. And rather than just saying, do you know what? I'll stick around and, and spend a year around some seasoned professionals, top of the league, come on a sub, maybe start a few. It would have been great, uh, probably better for my development. And in uh, and what actually happened was I kind of spat my dummy out when Mark McGee didn't play me and, and, and kind of ended up back at Chelsea. After that came Wickham Wanderers. It's a memorable one for them as they reached the FA Cup semi-final. And you play a major part in that journey. You score the winning goal in the fourth round against Wolverhampton um, and then you score in the penalty shootout, uh, penalty shootout against Wimbledon. Uh, you missed the quarter-final against Leicester and the semi-final against Liverpool because you returned to Chelsea. Roy Essendow gets all the plaudits nowadays, um, probably brought in because you had gone. It's an incredible first season for you, but you could have won Division 2 and played <laughs> in an FA Cup semi-final. It may seem a bit negative, but do you look back at that in a similar way, going, oh, for Christ's sake? Um, probably more so the Millwall one. Mm-hmm. The reason being, you described that perfectly, Rich, and the reason being, I was shopping in Manchester the day they beat Leicester and I had a back injury um, and that was the reason I wasn't involved uh, in that quarter final and uh, hence why Laurie Sanchez had to put a teletext message message out to get Roy Essendow because we had an injury crisis there was three or four strikers missing Roy Essendow wasn't cup tied he turns up he scores the winning goal against Leicester and I was shopping in Manchester and um, I had a girlfriend from up there and um, it was so bittersweet as you can imagine I I was just it was such a weird emotion because of course I wanted the lads to win but the way it played out I mean I was devastated I was absolutely devastated and I, I remember checking the score and I didn't know whether to laugh or cry that's the honest truth yeah. and I've probably never spoken about it really because you should be delighted for the lads but I wasn't because I wasn't there and I knew that I would have been in that team and it was um it was such a weird time and and because as you've just alluded to um, because the rules were different back then, the only way I could have stayed at Wickham um, for that semi-final and for the remainder of that season would have been to sign permanently. I was kind of advised against it by my agent at the time. And yeah, you don't want to sign for a club, you, your future, because of one game. But I had such an affiliation with the supporters at Wickham and I loved the lads. Again, it was 40 minutes from home and it was Liverpool at Villa Park in the semi-final of an FA Cup and I was a 19-year-old kid. So... Yeah, that's that's something that's it brings up emotion in me. And the club took me to the semi-final, which was great. And I went onto the pitch and waved at the supporters and all that. But yeah, it was a it was a difficult time really because I ended that season at Oldham. And if it wasn't for probably my agent, I probably would have signed for Wickham uh, permanently uh, at that time. But you end up at Oldham Athletic for the remainder of the season. Um, you score three times in seven games, and it goes full circle because your final game of that season is at Millwall. Or certainly yeah. against Millwall and it's another 5-0 but sadly on the receiving end of it this this time now if I was you 
with the bittersweet aside, I would have been extremely happy with that first season because you're getting plenty of games and you are scoring goals. Nowadays, Chelsea tend to send their players out, League One S players, to the Netherlands. Would you have preferred that, looking back now? I would have loved that, yeah, <laughs> me and myself. But that's the type of lad I am. Um, yeah, I'd have loved to have gone and played abroad. I think I nearly went to Sweden at one point, just prior to the Millwall move, actually, which would have been brilliant, I think. So, look, you can only... You can only look at someone like Mason Mount and see what that's done for his development. Yeah. I mean, the the whole loan uh, structure, um, the whole the loan situation at the moment is difficult because, you know, that the clubs at the top of the Premier League, they can afford to do that. They can uh, afford to stockpile and, and hope that one or two make it. You know, if they don't do it at Chelsea or at Arsenal, then Manchester City or Manchester United will certainly be doing it. So that's the difficulty with it. If one club doesn't pay the money, one of the other top clubs will. So I understand why it goes on. And yeah, for any young player, we've seen enough at, at Swindon over the last few years um, with the Chelsea lads coming down. Just get out and play football. Get as much experience as you can. Hopefully it'll be good enough to get into Premier League side. If not, you know, hopefully people will be as fortunate as I was by, you know, my first permanent move. Um, finding a home and obviously making my way up, back up the ladder. The following season, you joined Northampton and you sign, I think, under Kevin Wilson. Um, yeah. It, you, you sort of learn from the mistakes from the year before by sticking around. You spend the whole season there. You've got good experience around you. I think Jamie Forrester, but certainly Marco Gabbiadini, who had loads of games behind him. Are you preparing for Football League post-Chelsea life by making that move? You've got the number nine shirt. Were there pressures on you? I wasn't preparing. I still felt I had a, a future at Chelsea. Um, I think after that first year, I got a new contract um, at Chelsea. A couple of years on on good money, better money anyway. You know, we uh, during that era we got paid nothing at Chelsea. We were all on two hundred and fifty quid a week, I think, and that's John Terry included. So, so different from how it is now. We were rewarded when we played games. So, um, no, I still hoped that I'd go back. You know, get. 25 goals at Northampton and and maybe you know maybe it would have been a championship move next and then maybe got an opportunity at the the, the top level but yeah the, it didn't start well at Northampton and the problem being again I should have gone to Wickham they wanted me for the season again there was a Chelsea link with Kevin Wilson they took another player called Rob Williston uh, with me so you know from a kind of settling in perspective and being with a mate it kind of worked out but I never really enjoyed it there. It was a poor team, a really poor team. We struggled. Um, we found the way to grind out results after Christmas. There was a change in manager. And we stayed up by the skin of our teeth. And you know, from Christmas on, I actually played a lot of football with Jamie Forrester. And we did particularly well together. So I look back on that year. It wasn't as disastrous as I think people make it out. And I've mm. often been given stick from Northampton fans and still you know, know people in the work I do now. And oh, you were terrible for us and all this. Well, actually, the following year, they went down. I think it was a record low points. They went down with the following year. And although I didn't score a lot, I was a good foil for Jamie in the second half of that season. So, yeah, it wasn't perfect. But I think off the pitch and understanding the struggles on the pitch and stuff and being away from home, it actually made me grow up quite a bit. Um so I actually saw the manager, Kevin Broadhurst, who took over from Kevin Wilson. Um, saw him at a game at St Andrews the back end of last season. And I introduced myself again because he was you know, 20 years on or whatever, 15 years on, he probably didn't recognise me. And he was really hard on me. Mm. He kind of took away. I was living in a nice flat with Rob and 
we probably weren't looking after ourselves to be honest we were out a lot and you know we're both young kids away from home and um he bollocked me bollocked me a few times in the office and do you know what it was really good for me ultimately Mm. because I put in some good performances after that and and I said as much to him the other day which was it was nice you know because of I've probably slagged them off in the past, so it was a it was quite a nice moment. Do you think something that interested me when you you were going through that? Do you think that footballers at that age are a little bit more wayward because they don't necessarily have a choice to join a certain club? I mean, you could have joined Wickham, but you're told because of relationships with ex Chelsea players that really it's preferred that you go that way. Does that? then create that sort of rebellious streak do you think uh, no not so much with me not so much I, th- I just think well, we're going to come on to it but I had a really poor start at Northampton and all that belief and confidence that I had r- running through my veins the, the previous season just kind of evaporated and you know when you're wearing number nine and you've come from Chelsea the problem was then they expect you to pick the ball up and wriggle away from two or three challenges and smash the ball in the top corner well you'll know Rich I was I was capable of that once a season, but that wasn't my game. And, you know, Rob was a very gifted, silky player who stood out immediately. But for me, you know, I had different attributes and I worked a lot on confidence. And for some reason, I really lost the plot that season. That's the best way I can describe it. I remember, you know, and I had it in years after, you know, I remember having the late night phone calls with my mum and saying, I don't want to do it and I want to come home and, and all that and you know it's not you're 19 years old you're not I don't know are you although I've been in a dressing room and been in a kind of man's world you're still not really prepared for four or five thousand people calling you useless mm. and that's that's what I probably struggled with that year to be completely frank and yeah I probably didn't learn from it that you know in that regard because it happened again later on in my career and you think oh I want to fight the world and I want to argue with people and on a night out when someone abuses you you want to take them to task on it rather than just saying you know this is a this is someone in the pub who doesn't know you (laughs) who's had five or six drinks you know in retrospect of course I should have trained harder and worked on stuff and blocked it out but at 19 years old or whatever I was 20 years old that's difficult what's it like going up against Adam Reeves Matt Haywood Andrew Gurney and Neil Ruddock (laughs) yeah what that year yeah do you know what I remember the game at the county ground being very difficult game very difficult and I'm not just saying that because um, Matty's my mate or whatever but I remember I didn't get a kick out of Matty I think we lost 2-1 and I was really I think Eric won a penalty surprise surprise <laughs> but I remember the town end being really intimidating that's my they're my memories Matty Hayward battering me in the air Eric and probably Danny being electric I think Gratz might have been there at the time as well and um, I remember there being a real atmosphere and a real you know finding it difficult as an away side coming there that's probably my memories of those days yeah so it was um it was a difficult yeah very difficult game for me probably you know one of my poorer games of the season Goodwin loses out he's onside and this time it's five and this time Eric Seven doesn't miss go then in the summer of 2002 you decide to link up with Alan Reeves Matt Haywood and Andrew Gurney by moving to Wiltshire using Rich Banyard's unconquerable Swindon Town website as a reference your move was initially supposed to be a loan deal but it ended up as a permanent what are your memories of that negotiation stage of joining Swindon Town well I remember Kingy phoning me and um I was shopping again I feel like I've got an obsession here but I was in um I was in Richmond on the high street and 
I had a message, a voicemail from Andy King with Razor Ruddock shout and obscenities in the background. Um, and it was just basically about their interest. And that was it, really. I went down and I was very foolish looking back now because being a young kid at Chelsea and probably being around, you know, a football club that, you know, had better facilities and did things a different way, of course, in the Premier League. I kind of arranged to go down and have a look about and have a chat before kind of committing myself. And I don't know, maybe that's what I thought the the big players did, you know. And I went down and I remember Andy King just being basically like, yeah, what what do you want to see? Is a stadium, is a is a turn or whatever, and just basically had a cup of tea with him and Crozer and had a chat and I think I played head tennis all the lads will tell you that I think I played head tennis in the gym with him I remember meeting Matty Hewlett and Andy Gurney in the county ground corridors but yeah it was foolish of me because I went down basically all the way from London and uh, had a game of head tennis and a cup of tea with some mad old gaffer Andy King is a is a major name within Swindon Town and this podcast uh, I've talked to quite a few ex-players who played under Kinging as a fan I liked Andy King mm. he did well under strange circumstances but he did it in his own way of operating things and looked towards the dugout now. I can still see the puff of smoke from his cigar sort of clearing into the Wiltshire air. Um, what were your experiences of Andy King? Which side of the fence were you on? Were you a part of the golf and card school? Or were you a part of the uh, playing the guitar on the beach with Rory Fallon and Steph Miglaranzi? Um, I think for Kingy, I mean, you, I've already touched on the relationships I had with the managers the previous season. I mean, Kingy believed in me. You know, and and that was the biggest thing. And yeah, I struggled for that belief at times. And he really trusted my ability. He taught me up as a player and say it to me and he'd reiterate it if I was having a bad time. And he picked me, you know, week after week, even if I had a bad game. And he saw something within me during that pretty average year at Northampton. And um, that was the basis of our relationship, really, because from day one it was it was brilliant and listen I'm not stupid to think that he he wasn't you know particularly harsh on some of the players at times of course I saw that and yeah there were, there were times when I thought oh that's that's a bit strong or he should be doing things a little bit differently there but you know when you're young footballers and even towards the end of your career maybe I changed over time you're looking after yourself and you're making sure you're in the team at the weekend and of course you look out for your peers but that first season, I don't really buy into that there was any clicks in the cliques in the, in the squad. I, I really don't. The majority of the lads were Swindon boys. Um, there was me and Steph for a period who came from London and Reevesy. Uh, there was, yeah, there was a, a couple of the Bristol boys, obviously. But no, I mean, everyone got on with everyone that first year. And, and to answer your question, and the rest of the lads would probably tell you the same, I got on with everyone that's just what I did I was a young lad so I liked a night out I liked my clothes I liked music but I equally got on well with the older boys because I was very respectful of what they'd done in their careers you know I was prior to getting to Swindon and I was after you know when I played with Jim McGilton and Paul Furlong and Don Hutchison later in my career I loved being around these blokes because they're people I'd I'd, I'd always wanted to be of what's on the telly so I had a good relationship with all the older boys I'd go and have a night out with them I'd play golf I was terrible but I'd play golf and I'd equally go and have a beer with Rory and, and Steph and all those so that wasn't a problem to me that season uh, and again I'm not naive to think that some of the players 
probably uh, got looked upon favourably at times in terms of, I wouldn't say team selection, but of course, you know, Kingy trusted people and had better relationships with some. And maybe that, maybe he stuck with some of the old guard too long. Maybe that's a better way to put it. But, but yeah, that, that, that first year, I think it was a, it was a brilliant squad. Having come from Northampton where I didn't feel it was a great dressing room, that first year, I fitted in first day. So it was, um, it was a brilliant group of players. Swindon in the years before you join are a mess. Is that ever a concern when you join a football club? To be honest, at that age, no. Mm-hmm. I didn't give it a second thought. I think if you're 33, you've got a couple of kids and a big mortgage. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But I was living with my mum and my brother at that stage. And all I needed was a few quid for <laughs> the petrol to get me down few beers at the weekend and go and eat out far too much or whatever you know I wasn't I wasn't bothered about what I was earning that's the honest truth I wouldn't have known of course it was very good money for a 21 year old boy compared to what my mates were doing at university or whatever but it was never a concern to me and I, I can say that hand on heart even when Andy King was limping onto the training ground with his gout handing over the checks it, it didn't really bother me you know you shouldn't be getting paid by check obviously I think we can all agree on that when you're a professional football club and they're bouncing and and you're three weeks late or whatever but for me when I'm a, a young lad and his first money living at home nah, it, it didn't bother me at all I wanted you know the Swindon thing fitted because I've already kind of alluded to I knew about Swindon I knew the club I was familiar with some of the former players I knew they'd had the year in the Premier League I'd seen them play in the Premier League and yeah geographically it fitted and Probably at that age, I wanted to be, you know, around my family and my mates because that's just the way I felt. I had the opportunity to go to Scotland to kill Marnock, and that was quite in quite advanced talks. But, you know, I wanted to be at home and I wanted to to make a name for myself in England. Well, your first game of your Swindon career is a home game against Barnsley. Um, it's a game that's probably best known for Stefani McGillaranzi's debut. Something yeah. else Something else happened. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Well, Steph was majestic that day, as he was for the majority of my time there, really. But he made the first one, didn't he? Cut it back for me. But yeah, that, that was just... I don't think I'd had a kick up to that point. That was just a continuation of the pre-season. And... A lot of that was kind of gaining the, play, the, the the player's respect. You know, as a person, I always say that. Mm. The first thing you've got to do is the lads have got to take to you. That's the first thing you've got to do when you go into a football club. And it helped that we went away initially. And then, of course, I scored, I think, in every pre-season game. So that's the belief that Kingy had in me. And then immediately that grew within the group. You know, you could tell. And I had this real hunger after the year at Northampton. And it was evident probably for me in the first training session we had which was in a park in Southport when we were away pre-season we were staying in Pontins and we trained on a public park and I just had this real design I remember throwing a few people around and scoring a few goals and I thought yeah you know what I've got my hunger and my desire back and I was really impressed with the training as well I remember thinking this is a good group of players as well and um, yeah I think that belief that just was coursing through my veins during pre-season that was just what happened on that opening day that's the best way I can describe it it was just instinctive to score goals at that point and yeah what a, 
I mean, what a day. It's, it's goosebumps still now for me. It was just incredible. Nobody really talks about what happened after. I mean, you score in your second game as well against Chesterfield, but then Swindon go on a hell of a bad run. Something like six games lost on the bounce um maybe more you don't score during those games either from a center forward's perspective does it get harder when you endure a dry spell in front of goal yeah of course yeah i mean i think during those times i always used to try and work harder i'm not sure whose advice it was but you just work harder you make sure your all-round games there you make double the runs you're making you close more fullbacks down and you'll get your little bit of luck and it'll be an instinctive one that you've just got to direct into the goal or something like that. And invariably that did happen. But I remember that spell being, we weren't creating anything. And there was loads of games. I think we played Wickham on the Tuesday night in a cup. And there was loads of games coming. And all of a sudden, you know, we were staring at like five or six defeats on the bounce. And Kingy was under massive pressure. And yeah, I, I don't remember me missing a lot of chances. I think we were just really, really poor. I can't recall exactly why, but I think we were making really bad individual errors and we just didn't really have the belief that we were going to score them at the other end. You also play a game against Cheltenham and it's the start of an unattractive head-to-head that we have against them. We lose that game 2-0, standard Swindon at Wadden Road. Why am I bringing this up? Well, Bookie got me sent off, didn't he? <laughs> and then the referee... Oh, um, slid so into my nut. Oh, it's so funny. You can you the, the footage is on Rich Banyard's website and on YouTube. It's wonderful because they re, they replay it almost in slow motion as well. Describe the moment. Yeah, well, there was a, a ball and it was really wet, wasn't it? Mm. And it kind of slid through. Steve Book come out to take it, and I slid in stupidly. Now in retrospect, but I thought I could get there. You know, when there's a little coming together, if you both get there at the same time, and the, the net will be unguarded, and one of your teammates can score. That's probably what my thought process was. It's a yellow card. Yeah. Still looking back now, I don't think it's a red. Bookie was rolling around, wasn't he? Yeah. Whooping the fans up, and they ultimately, I think, got me sent off. So. And then the referee comes in, loses his foot in on the wet surface and flies into me. So I, I did mean to obviously go to ground, but the referee um, was quite, it was comedy, isn't it? He rolled into me and yeah, just on that, it's one of the, it's one of the weirdest feelings that obviously people that never play professional football will never experience. But being in a dressing room, knowing you've let all your mates down and knowing you've let the club down and you're going to lose the game and you're in the dressing room alone just with everyone's clothes and and there was windows at Cheltenham behind which were kind of at pitch level if that makes sense yeah. or a little bit above maybe dugout level and you like you can hear the game going on and the sway of the game and the fans ooing and ahhing and it's such a surreal moment it's like out of body because you know that you're supposed to be out there I suppose but you <laughs> you've been brandished the red card in disgrace and I remember sitting in there and um, the lads came in it's first half wasn't it or second yeah. half I can't remember the lads came in and I said I'm really sorry like that and Andy Gurney just went don't you worry at least you kick someone like that and it was just like I knew like they kind of respected me as a player because I'd started the season well but I just remember that line from Gurns because it was a desperate time wasn't it mm. a really desperate time and Gurney probably with a few expletives in there as well but it was nice coming from him and it, you make amends for it because in the next game you go and score against Northampton yeah that's a big one and funnily enough Johnny Jackson sent me the video of that the other day on WhatsApp because he scored the free kick in that one. And um, obviously I was getting abused by the um, Northampton fans. Mm. So to get the penalty and get the goal was brilliant. And that obviously was a bit of a turning point in the this, this season. And um, and obviously brilliant to get the goal against, uh, against them because I was getting, like I've already touched on, I was getting quite dog's abuse for not being 
so prolific the previous year. Let's talk about your strike partners uh, from your first season. So you yeah. had so Eric Sabin. Once compared to um, <laughs> <laughs> Andy King, once compared him to Thierry Henry, um, yeah. always struck me as a bit of an unfair comparison. Uh, do you know what? Eric, I'm still close to Eric now. He's a he's a lovely man. What a lovely man. And um, yeah, more so Danny, but Eric could still have outstanding performances um obviously very few and far between but yeah eric's just uh he was incredibly quick i remember having an outstanding game at chesterfield that one you've already spoken about the second game of the season he was brilliant that day but obviously after i kind of arrived he didn't play as regularly and didn't get the goal return but yeah i'm still friends with eric I've, i've been to see him in france my dad lives down there so most laid back man in the world as you can imagine i've sat God's honest truth in cafes in the south of France in the middle of nowhere and waited for him for two or three hours honestly I've booked a table for lunch with him and his missus and his family and he'll turn he'll he'll rock up three hours later and by then I'll have obviously got stuck into a bottle of red and have moved on so yeah he's bane of my life but yeah we still speak regularly does a bit of agency work and um yeah not my mum used to speak French so um, he used to come over and have lunch and, and what have you with his wife and yeah just a, just a top man Eric let's talk about Danny now when I mentioned Danny in a previous episode I, I went with Infachible that's right isn't it I think that's what he <laughs> wanted to be called but obviously we went completely against that and called him invincible <laughs> well either way what a player Oof. yeah what a good looking man as well Danny had everything <laughs> on his day Danny I think there was a time at Millwall when it used to be called he's having a Paul Eiffel because he was just some days in training you couldn't get near him and that was the same as Danny you know he's having an invincible he was unbelievable on his day but again he didn't really do it regularly when I was there there's that Wigan home game which I tweeted about the other day the Wigan home game I've never seen anything like it I was out there but there was no point in me playing he he had his own ball that day he was dribbling around people scored a volley carried us up the pitch time and time again when we were massively under the cosh now Danny had amazing ability um, yeah we, we were big mates as well um, I was regularly found on his um, sofa on Sunday mornings he lived right in the centre of town so he'd be one that would be telling me to um, have a night out so I'd every now and again I'd wake up on a Sunday morning on Danny's sofa a brilliant lad and obviously we went on to play in Scotland together briefly I was injured but um I spent a bit of time with him north of the border. Did, did a, had a few meals out and a few um, a few shopping trips with him. And another one, like yeah, another lad that I'm really fond of from that period. That team. Do you think if he stayed for 2003-4, we would have had just that little bit of extra that would have got us over the line? That's a brilliant shout. Never, never ever thought of that. Um, probably because he was so sporadic in terms of his good performances that that last season. But yeah, quite possibly. But we had Rory, didn't we? Yeah. Who was Magnificent and obviously really hard done by that. He had to sit and weigh it out behind me and Moons for the majority of the season. But, oh yeah, Danny, for an impact player, Danny was brilliant. And, you know, people will say it's only Kilmarnock and the SPL, but he went up there and I think was a regular for Kilmarnock for the next six, seven years. And he's a legend up there for them. So, now, Danny was an amazing talent. Just unfortunately, it was, it was getting it consistently. Park in! 1-0 Swindon Town! characters in the dressing room during that first season well obviously Razor early on and and it's difficult really with Razor because I think I don't think it was anyone's fault but there was kind of 
people trying to build maybe the media or the supporters or there was a bit of a wedge between Razor and the rest of the players because of the money he was earning and he was not playing he was not contributing but you know it was difficult I think because we love Razor and you know I was only with him for three or four months and I remember the first night I had out with him went to a karaoke bar and I ended up singing Roll With It and I probably only did it because I wanted Razor to think I was the man you know Mm. I wanted to be in his circle and but he was like, he had such humility, so generous, and he was just one of the lads, honestly. And so that, that was a difficult time. You know, you talked about the money earlier. You know, I wasn't bothered about, I wasn't bothered about it, to be honest. Of course, like, you know, if it's having a, an impact on the finances of the club as a whole, that's wrong. And, you know, of course, they, they had to come to some kind of agreement so they wouldn't be crippled. But in terms of us and, and Razor, our relationships, we never had a problem with him at all at the time. And, um, yeah, he, he was obviously brilliant and, and good for me as well in terms of encouragement and helping me with my game, which was, was very beneficial. Obviously, Gerns was crazy. I remember him some days just shooting from everywhere, just being basically a pest, ruining the session if he was having one of those days and obviously could lose the plot but we just kind of turned the other cheek in the dressing room if he'd have one of those days, you know, one of the, have one of those spells after a game. If he wanted to get in the bath and get, get home because he'd lost his head, we kind of accept it, rightly or wrongly. I remember him, you'll be able to help me here, there was a bar, it was a Tuesday night or something. I mean, these nights out in Swindon were very few and far between, let me hasten to add. I probably only had a handful of the three years I was there, but I remember him wearing a hard hat this probably sums him up pretty well that he'd obviously nicked off a building site and then proceeding to do somersaults for the rest of the evening just colliding into things throughout um, Old Town the bar was a Tuesday night and it was the only place you could get a drink after a certain time and it was upstairs and I remember him wearing a hard hat and a high vis for an evening out people listening will be screaming the answer to this but I have no idea because I'm not swindling everyone that's listening to this will know because it was like an unsociable day of the week Tuesday night (laughs) And it was up a flight of stairs and it was a small room and there was, I think, just one bar and that was it. And I just remember being my first season, probably my first night out, Andy Gurney somersaulting into people and into bars. And I just thought, well, at least he's consistent because that's exactly <laughs> what he's like on the pit. Um, there were some pretty decent contributions from uh, loan players that season. Well, Andy King was always pretty good with the loan market. Johnny Jackson, as you mentioned, Dean Marnie, Gerald Eiffel, and of course, yeah. and of course, Jimmy Davis, who uh, looked every bit um, a future star. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Jacko's one of my, my big mates still. Mm. Um, Johnny, we hit it off from literally the first day I, I picked him up to drive into training he's most laid back man in the world again like Danny good looking got a few quid lovely family basically got good golfer he's basically got everything Jacko not jealous at all <laughs> and then um, Jimmy Dean Marnie sorry first brilliant player good lad Dean as well I think I roomed with him for a, for a spell so he was a lovely boy Dean had an amazing career and yeah I mean all great players Jacko obviously had a tremendous career as well yeah. Um, but yeah Jimmy was something else really uh, in terms of his ability but his attitude as well you know coming down to Swindon and not having an edge to him not having any arrogance mucking in Kingy loved him cheeky good sense of humour we just all loved him and as a player I mean far too good for 
the third division. I mean, could run games. Run games because he was quick and he was skillful, but awareness to go with it as well. I mean, could finish. You can never say if someone's going to go on and be a Premier League player. I mean, that's ridiculous. But, you know, this kid had everything. And, um, yeah, so terribly sad. And, and obviously, you know, everyone knows how much it affected us because a lot of the lads had good relationships with him. Um, like I said, no side to him. You know, he was one of those lads that would not do the journey to and from his home in Redditch, wasn't it? Every day he'd stay down in Swindon with Robbo and have nights out and play golf and just a brilliant lad and yeah just one of my obviously one of my saddest memories that season we go toe to toe with some of the big hitters Wigan for example um, Crew we beat I mean it sounds daft now but Crew went up that year um, but it seems to be a perennial Swindon problem we struggle against the middle order and the strugglers this as you've mentioned and you maintain this was a talented side it really should have achieved more yeah I don't know yeah maybe we lacked a bit of creativity looking back I mean it sounds strange to say that but maybe in the following year when we had that kind of craft with um, Brian and Sammy and people like that it was a bit of a different feeling I don't know if we had that many match winners that previous year you know outside of Danny maybe uh, and defensively obviously we improved as well so yeah I, I don't know maybe that year it was just I wouldn't say it was thrown together but there was a lot of changes a lot of changes with loan players and and stuff like that so and 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 like we'll come on to the, you know a lot of the bench was made up by with homegrown Swindon players which yeah. is brilliant but you know none of those lads really to a man went on and and had great careers at the club so that's no disrespect for him because like I said it was a a brilliant group of lads that year but maybe we didn't have the depth needed to to really challenge to the summer of 2003 out go Danny Invercible um, and Eric um, and in come Tommy Mooney Sammy Igo Reese Evans Brian Howard those two not being as big a names as maybe um, as Tommy Mooney and Igo were and a seasoned pros AD Vivash comes back Kingy brought in a good blend of uh, youth and experience that summer mm. yeah I mean we were excited I remember being um at the training ground the first day and being excited at seeing these players coming. I think Tommy came a little bit later. I think quite a few of the others a few days prior had, had already been in and I think Kingy spoke to me about bringing him in and said this is what he was going to do and all that. And yeah, I mean, like you touched on earlier on, you know, about the, the splits, maybe if there wasn't in the dressing room, maybe that second year there was a little bit different groups. And the reason for that, like I touched on, there's, you know, there's more competition for places, so there's more unhappy people every week. That's just natural in a football club. The previous year, there was, you know, like Young E on the bench, wasn't there, mm. and Craig Farr and people like that. You know, lads who, you know, desperate to make it at Swindon Town, but, you know, obviously don't probably have the quality and the experience of these blokes that you're talking about. So the following year, there was probably more players that were disappointed that they were out of the side. And, and of course, that 
that brings a little bit of a disharmonious, um, if that's a phrase, atmosphere, you know? It, it is, it is, it's a smaller squad, as you said, because a lot of those youth players do go. How easy is it to integrate to a squad if there are sort of the fractions or the cliques? What sort of mentalities have you encountered for your career on that? Can footballers arrive at clubs like too focused, where they seem unwilling to get involved with the off-the-field relationships between footballers? Is it easy to just slide into a club? Well, it's petrifying. <laughs> I did it about 15 times. It's horrible that first day. But um, it's important to get to know people on a, on a personal level. And that's probably what I always made you know, one of my focuses. But within that, unfortunately, in that world, you kind of got, I get everyone's respect as a player and that's not always that easy and mm. that's the, the fickle nature of the business if they feel that you know players feel that this person's going to benefit our squad and get us extra win bonuses and propel us up the league and potentially take us to the championship then of course they're going to be woken uh, welcomed with open arms irrelevant of what a nice bloke they are that's mm. just the, that's the reality of it but yeah I mean that that year I don't look back and think anything negatively about the squad really I mean all good lads um, you know nobody came in and was moved on quickly because they couldn't settle it was just some people some of the players obviously were, were disappointed and probably didn't have great relationships with Kingy because they felt they should be playing and you know if you're knocking on the, 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 the door the manager's office on a Monday morning and asking why you're not playing and it happens week after week after week inevitably your attitude is going to change the best thing f- about 0304 for me was just it as a fan at the time it felt so unexpected putting the playoffs aside for a moment what are your lasting memories of that year well um leads away obviously mm-hmm. probably for personal reasons and probably the highs and lows of football encapsulated in in one evening really it's probably the i'd say in the top three performances i ever produced individually in my career I know it was a brilliant team performance, but I think that night really put me on the map. Mm. And, you know, having said that, it's one of my most disappointing evenings because we got so close on so many occasions. It almost felt like we were cursed. Mm. Almost felt like I was cursed, you know, given that I'd had that experience at Wickham and Millwall and, you know, even going back to nearly winning trophies in the youth team and stuff at Chelsea, I'd got so close and I don't know what, why we kept falling at the, the final hurdle and, yeah, I was so disappointed that night that we didn't win. We should have won 2-0, mm. 3-0. We were that superior. But, you know, in terms of myself, that was the night that really gave me the confidence that, do you know what, I've got a good chance of um, having longevity and a very good career here. The first game aside, which is the day Jimmy passed away to the Sheffield Wednesday game, starts poorly and we sort of rally back, but we don't get the victory. But then we go on quite a good run mostly wins but some draws in as well and then you get yourself injured and then we go on a run of four straight losses which is obviously detrimental for the rest of the season how frustrating is it to be sidelined and watching those losses come in yeah it was it really was I mean it was a knee injury that I suffered either at Ellen Road or the following game against Peterborough the reason I remember that is because you know I'd started to get linked with a load of clubs during that time and it's just a period that I remember vividly mm-hmm. because, you know, I felt kind of 10 feet tall, you know, that I was going to score every time I went on the pitch. And yeah, it was a, I had a little cartilage problem. And I think Andy King, knowing the relationship that we had, he probably sent me on holiday for a few days, much <laughs> to everyone's anger, the rest of the lads. That's what he normally do. That sending off I got against Cheltenham. I went to the south of France for five days. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> the rest of the lads? It should be in for extra training. 
but um, that was um, that was me and him, you know. He, it worked, and um, yeah, I remember being frustrated, and I was relieved when I didn't have to have an operation, and and of course, you know, this is all a new experience for me, being at the top of the league and, and battling for promotion. So we probably, I probably felt that I was going to come back and contribute, but obviously disappointed to sit in the stand and see us not not get the victories. Your partnership with Tommy Mooney is a, is a sort of odd one. In all competitions, you score you score 23 times over 45 games. Tommy gets 20 and 49. Yet you only score in the same game on three occasions, which is which is bizarre. What was your relationship like? Um, I think off the pitch, brilliant. He's very quick, witted. He's the type type of humour I like. Could be quite flash. And in a, a football dressing room, you could kind of get away with it if the delivery's right, if that makes any sense mm. at all. Because in the real world, you'd probably get a slap. But Tommy was quite funny. You know, he used to wear quite garish shirts or whatever, and someone would give him a bit of grief, and he'd say, "Don't blame me, blame Prada," <laughs> and um, stuff like that. You know, which I like that about him. He was he was quick, and yeah, I got on fine with him off the pitch. On the pitch, I think there's something in what you were saying. I think the reason for that was we were both very single-minded by that point Tommy more so than me I think his hunger for goals and his need to be the top man if if you like that had probably a positive effect on me in terms of my performances because I was like you know well I was a top scorer last season they were singing my name in the town end I want that to continue I want to be the the first name on the team sheet so I think that's probably why we were so successful as a pair genuinely I think when you have two players that were quite similar, like me and Tommy, it was just about the ball going up there. It was sticking because we were both good hold-up players. And when the ball went in the box, there wasn't me with that instinct anymore. There was Tommy as well. But yeah, I think we both had that single-mindedness to be the top scorer. And obviously it had a huge positive effect on the, on the team. So that's the best way I can describe it You know, on the pitch. It wasn't a York and Cole. We weren't leaving balls for each other and instinctively, you know, playing one-twos and knowing where each other were. That that wasn't the case, really. I think we just both had such a desire. And um, obviously, similar physiques, both decent in the air. You know, we were a real threat when balls went in the box. Just after halfway point of that season is one of my favourite times supporting Swindon because we're just getting win after win after win. You're scoring. Um, Tommy, it's beginning to wane a little bit nearer to the end of the season, but we've got Rory coming in, scoring loads of goals. It made me feel sorry for John Stevenson um, because he could not get a look in. And obviously, Good only, player, John. Yeah. Good player. Very good player. Yeah, should have should have been given more opportunities. Definitely, mm. there was one I was going to mention from the previous season. Actually, Gareth Edds. Yeah, you know, there. If we we're talking about players who didn't get a fair crack at, crack at a whip, Gareth Edds was a very good player and went on to be a good player at, at Milton Keynes. So he's one, and definitely John. You know, I remember that game at, at Leeds and at Southend the, the, the previous round, putting very good performances alongside me. I think so. Yeah, he he, he was someone who had clear ability. Yeah. Gareth was definitely someone that the fans wanted to see more yeah. of. I remember that vividly. John, because you and Tommy are scoring not so much, because that's what football fans can be like. Um, yeah, of course. But, but yeah, absolutely. And when we started talking a few months back about the possibility of having this conversation, you said, like, um, we're not talking about the playoffs. Um, <laughs> I, we have to, even if we just say, God, they're awful, right? That was the mm. worst. That was the worst. We were absolutely robbed in that first game. And then, well, if robbed in the first game, I don't even know how to describe that second one. Yeah, I mean, the first game, I think I had 30 people there, mates. I remember the tickets being on the on the mantelpiece kind of at my mum's house and just 
yeah, I bought a load of tickets and was trying to recoup the money from all my mates, you know, that I'd shelled out for. But that's that hot summer's day, wasn't it, at the mm. county ground? And I don't think I played particularly well, to be honest, but the team were excellent. Um, we had Tommy missed a couple, didn't he? Hit the bar, hit the bar, I think. And yeah, we should have been out of sight. Should have been out of sight, and oh, I hated that Brighton team. <laughs> um, we <laughs> had a real, a real needle with them, and things I don't really want to go into now because, you know, it's um, a long time ago, and you know, it's a, a different stage of my life now. Mm. But yeah, yeah, of course, the second game, you know, the, the rain, my family in the, the sheets that they were handing out, I believe, and just you know, the absolute upset of losing on penalty kicks when we were by far the better side yeah I mean I'd lost my teeth obviously two teeth in the game as well which just added insult to injury I didn't care about that I, I cared that I felt it was probably my best opportunity I don't know why but to get promoted with Swindon we deserved to get promoted in those mm. two games because of the, the way we played and yeah just sobbing basically in the dressing room soaking wet no teeth I remember ADV Vash giving me a cuddle and telling me that I was going to go on and do this and achieve things but I was straight off to hospital after the game uh, with Dick Mackey with my teeth in a pot of milk I think that's well documented probably in Swindon circles that's what happened and in my kit and in A&E in Brighton with people coming in with cut heads and God knows what else what from their nights out and I'm sat there in a, a Swindon kit soaking wet and um, yeah I had my, my face rearranged and I remember being back in the hotel that night we're staying over obviously hoping to be having a party and a few drinks and well, obviously we we drowned our sorrows but I remember just being nah it wasn't for me to be honest and I was always the first one to you know forget about a game and you know enjoy yourself it's you know it's not life and death but that night I couldn't enjoy myself I sipped some kind of alcohol pop for a straw I think and I didn't want to be there that was for me that was the whole season wasted yeah. and I know all you guys look back on it and I can at times and I know it was a great season and we really entertained with Brian and Sammy and Sean O'Hanlon Jarrell was that that season yeah, you know, we, had some, we had some great players great players and me and Tommy's relationship and yeah but yeah for me that's one night of my career I couldn't couldn't enjoy myself at all and um yeah, it was a, it was miserable, and it was a miserable summer. It was a miserable summer, and um, yeah, one that unfortunately you got to talk about a lot <laughs> because it's nearly as good as it got, really, in terms of where we were. You know, a kick away from, a couple of kicks away from the the millennium, and, and facing our rivals. One, I've never, I've not watched the footage of that game since. Never, yeah. never watched it again. Refused to. Two, you're completely right. I agree with you. I can't really look back at that season without remembering that Virgo. Um, go at the end. Um, Why have you said his name? Exactly. Um, three, I've never really forgiven the Brighton fans for the way they goaded the Swindon fans in the pouring rain afterwards either. And that's, yeah. that's the lasting thing for me for that. I mean, I've got, yeah. I don't, Brighton have done fantastically well. And the last point, um, we would have definitely beaten Bristol City in that final who were absolutely atrocious. It's just one of those things where everything just makes it so much worse when you, when you look at the scenarios. But anyway, we'll move on. Tommy Mooney bails for Oxford, a move he would later say regretted. Um, Post-Brighton, were you tempted to cash in on your ever-rising stock? Um, it was never really a consideration, to be honest. Um, I'm not sure what my contract situation was then. Maybe, I think I just had a year left there and I signed a new one halfway through the following season or the start of the following season. I can't honestly remember. But no, I remember being on holiday and uh, I think there was serious interest from... 
Hull City, Peter Taylor. And I remember checking my phone a couple of times during that holiday and seeing if anything was going on. But it never came to having a conversation with them. So, no, it was it was never really on my mind, to be honest. If something had come up, I obviously would have um, had to have got the green light from the club. Um, but, no, I, it was a little bit of paper talk from from Hull City and, and that was it, really. That's what I want to hear, to be honest. Um, Moody's exit results in a, in a struggle for King to try and get a replacement in. Lloyd O'Para comes in but swiftly departs. Andrew Caton is drafted in and scores a tap-in on his debut, but he's not ready for the, for the, for the first team at that stage. Darius Henderson comes in on loan, gets five goals in six games, including a very satisfying debut brace at Bristol City. Town try and negotiate a permanent transfer, but it fails to materialise. Could it have been different had he stayed? Definitely, definitely would have had a much better chance. Um, again, we're very similar, I mean, um, Darius, uh, players-wise. And um, it wasn't like, you know, another thing that instinctively really worked between us. But yeah, the, the calibre of player that he was, Darius, and what he went on to achieve, I think I really missed having a set partner that year. I think that's a, a really valid point. So, and yeah, of course, he, he was exceptional that day at Ashton Gate when I, again, was a bit poor. And um, yeah, would have had a much better chance, of, of course, with someone to take that burden off me, which, you know, ultimately probably probably cost us that year. Yeah, it just feels like, from what you're saying, it sounds like you, you thrive under a sparring partner um, like you did with Tommy, um, someone to just like, you both want to get goals. So if you're both getting those goals, Swindon are going to win games and they're going to go up. Did you get many more opportunities to have that sort of strike partner or were you very much, you became the lone man up front? Um, towards the end, yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, very much so. When, when teams stopped playing too, really, um, yeah, I mean, that last year at Exeter, I, I kind of enjoyed playing as a one in Scotland. Yeah, invariably, I'd play as a one. Um, there was a period, obviously, with Nicky Forster at Ipswich. Um, there was the time when there was kind of me, Troy Deeney and um, Darren Byfield jostling for two positions at Walsall. So I enjoyed, you know, that spell with Nicky. It wasn't particularly productive. It's 3-0. And it's Alan Reeves. You have a brief flirtation with the Scottish national side. Um, you're in the Futures squad um, in 2005 alongside Craig Gordon, Christoph Bear, Andy Webster all became uh, full caps. Um, Craig Beattie, who scored that night. I don't think I've ever felt as sad for a Scotland B game as I did that night because, of course, you went off injured early on. Yeah, that was that was probably the start of the next few years of my career really um, hindered by injury mm. and I'd never really been injured to that point and I trained really well which was the frustrating thing it was great because it was Walter Smith and Ali McCoist and uh, you can just tell when you're a footballer people are you know um, appreciative of what you've done especially on the, the training ground during that week and I really enjoyed it and I kind of got a dead leg really I think it was a hip injury which meant I had to come off and unfortunately you know, my stock was never probably that high again in terms of the goals I was getting at Swindon and I never really scored regularly again to get me into a position of having another chance of playing for Scotland. But no, I would have loved it because, you know, I'm very, very close to my mum and um, very proud of my Scottish roots. So it was an amazing thing to do um, and just unfortunate that it didn't really take off from that point. England play Scotland. Who are you supporting? Oh, what now? Yeah. 
Oh, I'm. You know, I'm English. <laughs> you know, I was born. I was. I was born here, and I support England, and I'm a Londoner. But yeah, I'm very proud of mm. um, my Scottish roots, my Scottish family. Very close to them, and you know, I would have put my heart and soul into that had it have happened. Let's look at your Swindon career in brief. You're the first name on the team sheet. Goals are rarely hard to come by. Um, you're adored by the fan base. Two of your three seasons result in the Player of the Year award. Some would argue you should have got it in 304 as well. Um, Scotland show interest. You're voted the 25th best player in the Football League by 442. Um, and now you're a Swindon Town Hall of Famer. Whenever I listen to you on your podcasts or on the radio, it's clear that you enjoyed your time at Swindon. But I like to think it's not as simple as I scored a lot of goals there um, what are your fondest memories of Swindon Town? Oh that's a difficult question <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just my club now Rich you know what I mean it's um, obviously I've spoken I've tried to articulate my feelings about QPR and Chelsea and stuff now and of course I'll always have an affiliation with those clubs but you know, Swindon's my club now I'm very fond of a lot of the people down there that still work at the club especially the, the former players you know people like Fraser Digby and and Martin Ling, even people like Don Rogers, who I've recently got to know the last couple of years. You know, I've got a real affiliation with with all the the history of the club now, which I think is vitally important. Um, I think it's something that's really missing from today's game. I'm not going to go on a big rant, but you know, for someone like me who was quite a bit of an anorak about the game, and obviously I knew about Swindon before I came, privilege for me to meet people like I've just spoken about and. You know, people like those guys should be speaking to the new players at the start of every season and telling them about the history and when they won this and won that. And, you know, that would certainly have given me a little bit of a boost. So, um, no, I mean, it's just probably the happiest period of my life. Um, and, you know, I think back to my, my family and my friends coming to the games and being so happy, seeing them in the bar, the players' bar, sorry, at Swindon after the games. Um, it's just a brilliant time in my life and um, I had a manager obviously who had the utmost trust in me uh, made me play my most successful football and it's just a place I know very very well now so you know I'm so proud you, you asked me if I was proud about my career of course I am to a degree but I've got a number of regrets but I'm immensely proud of those three years and that I'll always have some form of legacy in Swindon and that's just incredible for someone who grew up wanting to score or probably wanting to walk on a professional football pitch and to score one was probably beyond my wildest dreams so to do it with such frequently at a big club a brilliant club like Swindon is just you know incredible before we move on to your post Swindon career I've been asked by an anonymous source he simply says branching out into the Christmas tree business <laughs> uh, care to explain what what that that's all about Oh, this was brilliant, but I was going to say you're going to make me sound like a wheeler and dealer. It's more my mates, but the main protagonist in this is a wheeler and dealer. But it was my one of my closest mates at home, Tom, and my brother, uh, who was a young lad at the time, would have been just that he would have been at college or just at a secondary school. Um, they had a plot in Barnes, which is where mm -hmm. I grew up in southwest London. They had a plot uh, in the Red Lion pub, for anyone who knows it, which is the biggest pub, just straight road from Hammersmith if you see the red line they had the Christmas tree plot one year flogging Christmas trees in Barnes so <laughs> obviously I saw a little window and thought I could uh, flog them to the Swindon town lads so after my first year of doing relatively well I had a, a nice BMW and um, I'd recline the front seat 
and I'd stick a Christmas tree <laughs> vertically alongside me down the um, down the passenger side, and I'd drive down with a couple of stands in a couple of different colours, just uh, depending on what the wives or girlfriends wanted to go for, and I'd uh, bring down a little uh, Norwegian whatever they're called down on a, a Monday morning I remember selling a few I did not, I didn't make you know this isn't this isn't a dragon's den or anything but <laughs> you know I, I made a few quid to be fair but um, can you imagine yeah at that time what did you just say 25th best player in the football league <laughs> driving down the M4 with a um, with a Christmas tree and as a passenger yeah, I don't. I don't remember getting. I don't remember being flush with cash as I, you know, drove past memory on the way back. But yeah, I probably got a drink out of it. <laughs> so Swindon's hopes of maybe getting another might be quite high. This is Miglia Ranzi in towards Fallon here. It's Fallon. It's two one. Swindon on fire. That's a great finish. Great finish from Fallon, pulling it onto his right foot and getting away. But it's made by that man Miglia Ranzi. to the post and stuff so you moved to Ipswich is a heartbreaking experience for us as fans obviously you're always going to leave but it, it plays out in a semi semi will he won't he storyline because I, I vaguely remember you going away to Australia for a, for a think um, what were your options in the summer of 2005 well I don't know if it was for a think <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I met a mate over there a bloke who lives in Sydney now actually one of my best pals so um he fell in love with it, me not so much. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I think it's something I'd always wanted to do. So you get the opportunity when you're a footballer and you get that kind of um, long chunk of your summer off. So that was good fun. But yeah, I mean, the, the Watford deal was obviously the one that was kind of done, if you like. Um, I wouldn't say it fell down on personal terms. It was more that I believed Ipswich were going to be more successful. But I met A.D. Boothroyd, who I loved. Um, I thought he was brilliant what he said to me and I came out of the meeting and I told my agent loved him but they're going to get relegated he just told me who he's buying blah 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 and um, of course they got promoted the following year so it shows you what I know and um, the other two the other only other conversation two conversations were with Nigel Worthington at Norwich and um, Ian Holloway at QPR and of course I'd have you know I'd have walked to QPR and and played for QPR for nothing, but uh, there was a, a figure that was in the contract. I believe, you know, I don't, I don't really know exactly what it was, but Ipswich could meet it, Watford could meet it, Norwich could meet it, QPR couldn't. So it was a straight choice between those three. And Joe was texting me actually. Joe Royal was texting me, and Ian Holloway was texting me. Can you imagine? It's mm. like Ian Holloway is one of my heroes. And and um, once I've been up and seen Ipswich, uh, that was it really. Um, saw the training ground, met Joe. Uh, saw the ground, could smell the history again, and that was it. I, I called Nigel Worthington, I called Eddie Booth, I didn't make it up to Norwich. Me and my agent stayed in Ipswich that night in a hotel, and the deal was done the next day. And Yeah, I mean, Kingy tried to sign me, and we spoke verbally, more like just mates, you know, he, I'll give you this to stay, and <laughs> I'll give you that. And You know, looking back, without sounding completely self-obsessed, I suppose... He was worried about his job a little bit as yeah. well. And he knew that, you know, keeping me and having lost Tommy, it was going to be difficult the following year. Mm. Um, and look, I didn't consider it, I'll have to be honest. Looking back now, wouldn't it have been great to stay for 10 years, you know, mm. or whatever, and get them up into the championship and be like Matt Letizia, of course. <laughs> like, looking back now, that would have been outstanding. I would have had a statue. Yeah, it's 
at that age I'm hungry I'm hungry to get back to the top I want to be playing the highest level and of course the finances do come into it you know when you're talking about the type of money I was going for and, and going to be earning over the next four years it of course that's a, a factor so listen for all for everything that followed at Ipswich as, as desperate as it was at times for me that day I signed there you know it was a brilliant day it was a brilliant day not because I was leaving Swindon not because I wanted to leave it was a brilliant day because I was signing for a championship club yeah. and I was signing a very good contract and you know people were people were taking notice of me and I'd worked hard for that I felt and I don't blame you and no one did blame you I mean when you put in like the three years that you did no one begrudges it there was no one going you know turncoat nowadays you'd get the snake emoji wouldn't you on there yeah. on Twitter but that was never going to happen even if that happened in 2018 but sadly Ipswich doesn't work out I was down in Plymouth at university when you were at Ipswich and I went near to the end of the season I went to pay pilgrimage by watching um, you play at Argyle and oh, yeah. you came on in the last half hour and you were a completely different player um, it was yeah. quite a sad sight your body language was very negative I was in the away end and you weren't the most popular person on the pitch what went wrong at Ipswich? Well to be honest that was my first game back after four or five months November I did the injury that was the last game of the season wasn't it yeah so that was my first game back and yeah I mean I wasn't fit for for, for one but yeah my my whole demeanor that you described there was was probably right I was shot to pieces as a footballer in terms of my confidence in terms of my physical attributes as well Um, what happened there was I started poorly like I spoke about earlier I had stick from the supporters. I lost my confidence. I went into my uh, shell, if you like, instead of kind of walking around with my my head up and my my shoulders held high and and working on my game and improving and working harder. I felt that everyone was against me. I wasn't getting the respect for what I deserved at Swindon. And you're never going to get that. That's that's gone in football. That's the past. And all the Ipswich fans were going to judge me on was the performances that I was churning out then and there. So, very difficult start, even though I had some real highlights. Five goals, I think, um, in my first few months in the championship. Two at Ellen Road. Got a winner at Millwall. Scored a QPR. Great goal. Probably one of my, my best goals. You know, Probably on par with that one for Swindon against QPR. And <laughs> I felt none of that was appreciated, to be honest. And, and then the best way I can tell you is I broke my leg. Um, at home to get against Reading. I had so many injuries to that point that it's you know made me cause me to miss a day's training or be substituted. I never felt for one minute I'd broken anything. I thought twisted my ankle. I'll be back for the weekend or back in a fortnight's time. As I walked off the pitch, I was abused by by someone uh, verbally. The physio ended up having an argument with someone. Mm. Dave Williams, he was called brilliant fella, and that pretty much can sum it up for me. You know, that's that's how low it was, really. And um, the injury, without getting too bogged down, I came back far too quickly. I tried to play. I tried to play to the point where I was back on crutches. I was getting back to my flat after a reserve game in tears, the pain. And that game that you refer to, the Plymouth game, I was playing effectively with a, a fracture that hadn't healed in my ankle. And it wasn't until 10, 12 games into my Luton career that I was scanned and x-rayed and what have you and and that was obvious to the to the surgeon that I hadn't healed properly from the initial operation so all that time I'd spent re 
habilitating and and trying to get fit, playing reserve games, doing the pre-season the following year, I was always going to break down. So unfortunately, it wasn't only mentally where I was kind of shot. Physically, um, I was in a bad way as well. Luton Town, as you say, followed. Wow, those few years at Luton Town is something that I've never experienced as a Swindon fan. Now, I've read that you've enjoyed you enjoyed your time at Luton um, and made good friends there. But what was it like to be around such chaos? I was was mayhem really from the first day I, w- I went in. Obviously, really good set of players. Um, didn't get coached particularly. We knew kind of what we were doing from Monday to Friday. It was quite repetitive, but we had a great team spirit and some great players in that dressing room, like you know Leon Barnett, Evan Foley, Rowan Vine, Richard Langley. Players that all went on and done you know things at a higher level, and. Um, but it was almost immediate, really, in terms of Mike Newell's stuff with the agents, wasn't it, initially? stuff. Yeah, no, it was It was kind of like uh, Mike Newell was on a self-destruct mission from the word go. And, and obviously the finances of the club were all over the place. And yeah, um, we got relegated that year um, out of the championship. I was obviously on the sidelines during that period, trying to be as supportive as I could and, and be around the place. But fighting a battle to, to save my career which at that point it, it very much was and um, yeah the following years the administrations under Kevin Blackwell I remember him ringing me I was living in St Albans at the time calling every lad individually to tell him that we were going into administration 15 points I think it was immediately deducted put us into the bottom four and I wrote about it recently I mean when you're you're in a position where you're thinking about climbing the table and being successful and immediately you're fighting for salvation and and players aren't getting paid we're having more meetings with the PFA than we are with the the, the football staff you know everyone's got their agenda agendas to get out of the club to go somewhere where they can have a safe future where their money will be paid on time where they can look after their families young players without any money having to take money from the PFA and from the senior professionals you know that can split the most tight-knit dressing room and that's probably what happened during that second season. And the third year, obviously, will never happen again. Yeah. 30 points deducted. Yeah. I mean, crazy. Just absolutely, you know, Mick Arthur was playing seven people up front from the first game of the season because we had to win every match. And I went off, obviously, off to Leighton Orient during that spell because they had to get me off the wage bill, I think. But yeah, was, you could write a book about it, yeah. to be honest. Great, great lads got some some of my closest mates from that period i lived in st albans for a number of years so i was only down the road great support horrible ground even i was intimidated and i was one of their own players um but yeah just a a mental few years and obviously another decision i think over and over again i could have gone to preston before going to luton and um i decided to stay down south probably more due to personal circumstances so sure. never make a decision based on a on a girlfriend that's what I've learned from that one <laughs> but you get a few minutes at Wembley get a few minutes at Wembley um, <laughs> which was amazing brilliant yeah in kind of the sense of everything that was going on with the club and you know you can churn out all the cliches here but to give them a, a nice afternoon mm. you know more than anything was was nice was yeah. pleasant and we had a good party really good party and um, I actually played on the Tuesday, half cut, because we'd had a couple of days out, as you can imagine, the lads, and uh, with the manager. And there was a reserve game against, I think 
think it was against Watford, who were obviously the rivals. Yeah. This is how far my stock had fallen to win the reserve league. So Mick pulls me into his office. I'm thinking I'm going to go in and you know do an hour's training and get ready for the Saturday. He said, you've got to play in a reserve game in the afternoon. So I tried to argue my case. Uh, I ended up playing and I probably still had a load of Stella um, juggling around in my belly and I ended up scoring a volley from about 30 yards. <laughs> and um, when the, all these amazing goals in me game in the championship the other day, I was like, I had to bite my lip because I wanted to say, I got one once. <laughs> pissed in a reserve game for, uh, <laughs> for Luton so um, I don't think anyone could believe it and even more so me because I wasn't the best of Nick it probably comes as no surprise then that you become somewhat German, journeyman like um, after Luton you have an uneventful stint at Walsall before embarking on three years up in Scotland when Derek McInnes signs you for St Johnston I think um, then Queen of the South and St Mirren followed. Mm. How did you find life north of the border? You've been you almost gone up there with Kilmarnock as you said before. Yeah. Um you played places like Celtic Park. You almost get a point at Celtic Park. You play and score I think at Pataudry. That must have been consolation because that is top flight football. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of Scottish football. Um if I'm honest with you, it must have been good just to be at that sort of level. I loved it, Rich, to be honest. I mean, I would advise any player God forbid, but if they have a, a similar career to me in their 20s or becomes a little bit mundane maybe, need a bit of excitement, a change, I thoroughly recommend going up there. You know, proper stadiums, top flight, big business up there, big news. You're on the back page of every paper. You know, the old firm, there's 10 pages dedicated it in every tabloid every day of the week. So I loved it. I lived in Glasgow for three years. Brilliant way of life love the people um, you know very very kind Glaswegian people they loved it that I was enthusiastic about their city I embraced it and um, you know there's no side to the players that's what I always say you know when you're I think even more so in the modern game a bit different when I was playing but now you walk into a championship dressing room and there's people are earning an awful lot of money and there's a lot of egos in Scotland um, I wasn't aware of that at all. They're all normal lads, down to earth, working class boys, family men, not big money, of course, and great dressing rooms, great humour. And um, I loved it, specifically the, the last year, 18 months. Uh, St. Johnston was hard. I broke my, my other ankle at St. Johnston. Um, I didn't do particularly well, wasn't a great team. Um, a lot of variables you know more mm. my form of course you know I'm not passing the buck there but I didn't settle as well at St Johnson as I did at St Mirren partly because um, it was closer uh, geographically partly because it was a better team playing a better brand of football um, and I was just in a better place probably actually mentally I was probably that was probably the biggest thing um, I had things going on in my personal life um, that were, were difficult in the first year at St Johnston but at St Mirren I I buckled down, played nice football. We won the League Cup. I loved the lads. And um, that was actually, I wanted to say it actually, it was after a spell at Queen of the South, which sounds quite amazing that I ended up playing there at a ground called Palmerston. But it really was probably the, the most enjoyable time outside of Swindon in my whole career. And the reason for that was Gus McPherson, the manager, he's mm. back at St Mirren now actually. He, he was quite like Kingy. Mm. And I felt that trust and that belief from the first time I met him in a Costa Coffee or whatever it was um, in Glasgow he and the lads 
you know, loved me and they, they thought I was a good player and I had all that belief and it was almost being back at Swindon. You know, mm. the, the, the thought process, you're going to go and you're going to score. It was easy again. Training was easy. It was enjoyable of scoring goals and everything I used to do intuitively, you'd come back and mm. don't know why it was. I think maybe, you know, I, I really cherish being that, you know, being the top man and having the pressure on me. You know, maybe that was it. Mm-hmm. And I really loved it. And that, that meant that I could go on and have that, you know, in, I wouldn't say it was very successful. It was a great year for St Mirren the following year because we won the cup. But yeah. um, me personally, I didn't play. I was I was kind of jostling with Stephen Thompson, who's a St Mirren legend and, and he played a number of times for Scotland. So me and him, it was me, me or him really in the team. But, you know, I didn't have that probably rivalry with Steve I I really really I don't know I probably it was his moment in the sun if you like because mm. he was back at his boyhood club and he was playing well and maybe I accepted that I was going to be playing second fiddle but I did a good job in that role Did you did you not get on at Hamden though? Yeah I got on yeah yeah I got on yeah in the final yeah similar to Luton really came on to kind of see it over the mm. uh, over the line and um yeah, and they had a half a chance actually, which unfortunately I think was just flagged offside. But oh, that was an amazing atmosphere, and it made me think of Scott Brown um, mm. saying the atmosphere was poor the other day. I, I don't know if that's something about the old firm, you know, and maybe when they're playing there, it's a bit different. I wouldn't expect so because those supporters are amazing. But um, the in terms of the atmosphere that day, Scottish League Cup final it was incredible. I mean, you know, when you're playing, sometimes I used to. Again, a little bit out of body experience. You hear, can't your ears go a bit funny because the noise is such. And I really felt it that day. The heart supporters, when they were wheeling their team on to get the equaliser late on, it was some of the best. That was the best atmosphere probably I played in mm. there and there and um, Celtic Park. I would say mm. two amazing stadiums. And and again, that was a brilliant time. Um, good relationship with the manager. I remember him coming up to me after the game and we were in the party in a hotel in um, in Glasgow. We had an open-top bus straight after the game, which is quite a continental thing to do. Mm. You know, in Spain, they do it. We were straight round Paisley on the open-top bus, um, then to a party in a hotel. And I remember the manager just coming up to me. My brother um, works um, for a menswear brand. And I remember the manager coming up to me at the party, half-cut, and saying, could he have a load of clothes? <laughs> <laughs> have a week off <laughs> go back to London get me a load of clothes I'll see you the following Monday because obviously we were I think we were safe from relegation we won the cup and he went you know normally I you know, quite often jump on a plane back to London and he, he come up to me pissed and said um, have yourself a week off but get me some clothes <laughs> <laughs> so I just um, yeah great great dressing room and um, really really yeah probably my Scottish club now I would say St Mirren definitely And then, like you do, you go from Scotland down to Devon to join Exeter for the for, yeah. the, for the final season under Paul Tisdale. Um, at this stage, are you beginning to think about the end of your career? Are you thinking about coaching or is it always going to be media? I don't think you ever are when you go into a new club, to be honest. I think there have been summers probably leading up to that where I'd had flirtations about coming back to London and maybe playing part-time and doing some other bits. I'd written a blog for the Scottish PFA that, that previous season. Um, which I'd really enjoyed. Yeah, I'd always probably felt during times of my football career that I was in the wrong 
world. You know, I love football and I love playing. And of course, I was a good footballer. Of course, I was. But you know, I always liked speaking to the press and dissecting games and always tried to give a good interview and enjoyed writing at times as well. So yeah, it was always what I wanted to do. That last year at Exeter, early on, kind of those feelings I just described about Queen of the South were back. You know, I was playing well. I was important to the way the team had started. First name on Paul Tisdale's team sheet for probably four or five weeks. And I was really derailed by a hamstring injury that year. And unfortunately, kind of couldn't get back in the team. Lost my confidence, lost my rhythm. I can, you know, just a repeat of what had happened before. And, you know, if I spoke to you about all those things, we'd be here all night. But mm. it's something that I think with the injury and combined with missing so much football, loss of confidence, belief, more the physical probably, but mentally as well. That's probably a large part of the reason as why, you know, my career didn't hit the heights. But yeah, the Exeter year, there were there were spells where I felt I deserved more of an opportunity. There was a period around spring, uh, my birthday, March, when I got back in the team and did really well, only to be cast aside a few weeks later. And I felt it was really unfair. And to that point, at that point, that was probably the start of the end for me, to be honest, because I was angry and I was mm. upset. Those are the two words that jump out at me. I was very upset. And um, it was hard, really, to to get my morale back. And I'd already kicked my last ball in professional football by then, you know, this period I'm talking about. Yeah. So I got no kind of send-off. Not that I was going to announce my retirement or I'd done enough to achieve that or, any, you know, any of that. But... I just kind of finished on the bench at Exeter, which is not obviously the way you want to end. During your career, you played over 400 times. You scored over 100 goals. That's a lot more than a lot of your contemporaries at Chelsea could probably boast. So you must be happy that although you may not have played in the Premier League, you may not be John Terry, you still managed to get that career. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the injuries as well, I could have been finished at 20... 526 that was a very realistic proposition you know for me to have to try and comprehend so yeah to go on till I was 33 yeah I'm, I'm obviously very very thankful for that but you can probably already sense you know with the what ability I feel I had at a young age of course there's regret that I didn't achieve more and you know there was the Scotland interest as well and I was never a obviously get to be an international and and of course I'd have loved to have got back to the top division as well or you know at least have a couple of brilliant seasons in the championship so yeah uh, of course I'm very thankful and very proud you know immensely proud of the three years at Swindon but yeah of course I'm 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 really chuffed that I was able to be a footballer for for 13 years or, or whatever it was. But you you did end your career at Exeter and now you have quite a busy career in um, the media. Because you work locally, I've been really, really impressed with, with your graft. I remember seeing you pitch side at Hard Newish Park, Chippenham, um, and thinking, 
bloody hell, I bet Jermaine Jenis and Robbie Savage going <laughs> to have to do this. But you're there. Um, you did your podcast with Danny Gabadon and Reese Weston, which I really enjoyed. Um, you work, you've worked for the BBC, Talk Sports, Sky, Football League Paper. You do your podcast with uh, the Totally Football League show, mm. which is really, really good. And it's always great because there's a nice little reference to Swindon Town on a regular basis as well. Mm. How are you finding it? Is it as competitive as it seems from the outside looking in? Oh, it is. And yeah, I'm, I'm learning all the time. I mean, the reason for the hard and who-ish and all that is because, well, one, I had probably the luxury, given my personal circumstances, to put a year or two aside to really learn and make a go of it. If I had children and my situation was different, I may not have been afforded that. I would have had to go and get a job. So that's kind of the way I looked at it. I didn't earn anything probably those first few years but for me if I'm going to do it and it's something that's going to have longevity you need know to you need to know the industry you need to know all about it and and that's why and it's given me an incredible grounding I'm so thankful and I always will be to Sean obviously who you'll know um, at the BBC he was one of my first phone calls during that year at Exeter can I come in and do some co-commentaries and of course straight away got me in doing some bits and bobs and it snowballed from there really going interview the strikers going interview the manager and you know ultimately I I started sorry eventually I started doing a bit of presenting for them which was incredible so it's been some journey already I'm not I won't lie and and tell you it's been easy Uh, the first year I really struggled without football Mm. Um, very very tough I won't go into it now because of we're reading about it every day in the papers. Yeah. But, yeah, incredibly challenging for people that have, you know, any elite sport or any environment where you've done the same thing for so many years and been told where to be and what to eat and all that, it's scary. And um, I went through um, some particularly tough times. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, thankfully, all that ground in that first year, you have that feeling, where's it going? I'm not going to get anywhere, you know? What am I doing this for at times? But deep down, there was something inside of me that knew it was the right thing. And um, no, it's going really well at the moment. I'm, it's so enjoyable. I love going to games. It's not work, is it? It's brilliant, you know? And um, But I, I, I leave no stone unturned. I, I sit here in my flat or in a cafe and I work. And I work on everything I'm doing, every podcast, every game I'm going to. Um, every article I'm writing, I give it my all. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I wouldn't say that there was necessarily in me when I was playing football. What I mean by that, it was I wasn't one of those that needed to win every day in training. You know, I was quite level-headed about things. I could switch off after a defeat, you know. And Monday's a new, a new week. Saturday's a new game. I was very much like that. But with this, you know, I am, for some reason, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really... Uh, desperate to do well I suppose and um, yeah it's been really good recently so um, nice and busy Um, but still adapting you know it's only four years still adapting still have the odd um, dark day but I think that's inevitable given you know what my life was I suppose Absolutely, it's, it's it's something that I would say football fans largely don't don't really think about. When a player retires, you just think, oh, they'll be waving on the pitch in twenty five years' time, yeah. <laughs> and we'll yeah. we'll clap them and we'll sing Super Super Sam Super Sammy Parkin. But we don't really appreciate that you have to adjust to life after playing football, and no matter how you're there in the commentary box, it's not the same as being down there um, trying to put the ball into the back of the net is it um 
is it like covering Swindon Town as a broadcaster? Uh, well, that first year was amazing because, <laughs> I mean, I said it loads and it does does Kingy um, a disservice, but the football that they were playing, you know, under Coops that mm. first year, it's light and day, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was brilliant when it came off and that was a privilege for me and, you know, it would have been great for me as well, being selfish if they got promoted to the championship. Of course, I was desperate for it, but, um, yeah, it was brilliant. But yeah, I'm I'm emotionally invested in it now, of course, and I don't want to be seeing Swindon in League Two. I got to put up with like Andrew Hawes enough and Sean and Chris Tanner and Nick Judd and people like that, you know, enough. I got got them on the phone, filling me up, filling me up to date with the latest performance, and of course, I try to get to as many games as I can now. Um, and I'm desperate for him to get back, and mm. you know, I was really disappointed. I loved Luke and Ross. Um, I loved Coops, to be honest. They were so nice to me, welcomed me with open arms, um, you know, as I, I feel former players should be. You know, I feel really passionate about that. But, um, yeah, it's been really sad, to be honest, the relegation. And then, obviously, last year was just a bit of a nah season, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. And, I, you know, I like Phil Brown. I like Phil Brown. But there's still just something for me missing. I don't know what it is. I can't put my foot finger on it. Uh, being a someone who's supposed to be a broadcaster that's not particularly good analysis but I just can't it's um, I think you know playoffs is a realistic proposition but I just don't see them challenging the automatic again this year I may be wrong I hope I'm wrong I want to be back down in Swindon I've said to Sean I want to be doing a Friday night BBC championship show <laughs> every Friday you know that's what I want to be doing um, talking about you know Swindon but you know, I love coming. Of course I do. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to get to a, to a game soon. Final question then. You close your eyes. You think of Swindon. What are the what are the things that come come immediately to mind? Oh, being on the pitch before a game and hearing the town and the supporters singing my name, I suppose. I mean, what can better that for a young kid who wanted to be a professional footballer? That's That is just... It was the, the, the dream, you know, and I experienced it every other Saturday for three years, you know, and I always used to give a little wave and, you know, you, you didn't get an opportunity to explain it, but that was just the best feeling in the world, the mm. best feeling in the world. Scoring a goal, the Tannoy saying the Super Sammy parking and that feeling again for two or three minutes when you feel invincible, mm. Danny, <laughs> um, <laughs> not literally, but yeah, yeah, you, you you feel incredible and you've got that adrenaline running around and all that but yeah there's so many memories like just the happiest time and that West Country accent greeting my mum when she used to drive into the car park you know or eight Mrs Parkin uh, when she drove in and just seeing how happy it made I suppose my family and my pals really Sam thank you very much pleasure Rich The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. 
Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hi, Ellis Pod fans. It's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.